This morning's sermon text reading is Psalm 90, and it can be found on page 8 of the order of worship. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, friends, as it's already been mentioned, uh, we are beginning a mini sermon series for the rest of the summer uh, looking at various psalms. Uh, This is somewhat of a steady rhythm for us here at Redeemer. And as many of you already know, the book of Psalms has been described as the hymn book of the Bible. The Psalms were songs that God's people would sing as they worshiped their God. As they collectively lifted up their voices to their God and King, the Psalms would have been on their lips. The Psalms shaped the theology and the imaginations of the people of Israel. And I find personally that the Psalms have a unique ability to minister to God's people in very unique ways because the Psalms address the diverse emotions that flow from the human heart. You see, the Psalms have the ability to help us say and sing things that we don't often want or know how to say. They give us words to sing out our deepest pains and sorrows to God. They also give us vocabulary when we have a joy that is inexpressible. One writer says that the Psalms make it possible to say things that are otherwise unsayable. In the church, they have the capacity to free us to talk about things that we cannot talk about anywhere else. And this morning, As we come to Psalm 90, a very special psalm in the Psalter, a psalm that frees us to talk about a subject 
that many of us never want to mention or talk about, and that subject to consider is death. Psalm 90 invites us to consider our own death. Friend, I wonder, when is the last time you gave serious thought to the fact that you will one day die? For many, and I dare say most of us, this is not something that we spend much time reflecting on. We in the West, for the most part, do everything we can to avoid having to think about our own mortality. Our culture has tried in every conceivable way to remove our sense of death awareness, to have us believe that we really might live forever. Death is a subject that has become taboo in our society and even in the church. Death, as J.B.I. Packer says, is the great unmentionable. To mention death is to be morbid. It's awkward at best and simply disturbing at worst. We don't want to think about it, so we push it out of the imagination and psyche of our culture to avoid thinking about it at all costs. But friends, simply ignoring the reality of death doesn't change the fact that unless the Lord returns, all of us are going to experience the pains of death. Previous generations spoke of death far more frequently and consistently, but now for the most part, again, our society has stopped paying attention to the reality of death, and I think this has a negative effect on our discipleship as Christians. It can even limit our ability to truly delight in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As one writer says, when the reality of death is far from our minds, the promises of Jesus often seem detached from our lives. In the past, it wouldn't be abnormal for a church to have a cemetery yard on their property. That as God's people would enter into worship, they would be reminded of death and of their mortality. And I like to think that that shapes the life of a congregation and even influences how they worship together. One of the chief duties of a pastor in previous generations was to help his people learn the art of dying well. And I'm not suggesting that you and I need to start fundraising a whole bunch of money to build a cemetery next to this church, but I am saying that we, particularly because we are a younger congregation, need to be reminded of death so that we might revel in glory and rejoice more and more in the gospel of Christ. It gives us this framework to think about things that have eternal significance. And I think Psalm 90 was written to help us do just those things. Now, in order for us to understand what's going on in this psalm, we need to have some knowledge of the background information that is connected with this psalm. The, the psalm, according to the heading, which you'll see in your, your Bible, was written by Moses. And as you know, or as many of us know, Moses looms large in the history of God's people. God used him to free his people from their bondage of, in Egypt. 
Moses was to be considered the, the covenant mediator of God's people as they journeyed through the wilderness. In fact, the Bible says that Moses had this very unique relationship with God. The Lord described Moses in number tw Numbers 12 as one whom he talks face to face with. And it appears that this psalm is written towards the end of Moses' life. Personally, I agree with scholars that it seems that this psalm was written after the incidents that take place in Numbers chapter 20. And if you flipped over to your Bible and read Numbers chapter 20, you would notice that there are three major incidents that define Moses' life. First, Moses' sister, Miriam, dies. Moses loved his sister. She had a hand to play in the, the life of, of, of Israel. She was one of his closest friends and family members. She would have been one of the few people who were still living from the generation that left Egypt and uh, that had come out of Egypt and has made it through the wilderness. The second thing that happens is that Moses sins grievously against God. He does not listen to the voice of his Lord and he does uh, something different than what he was commanded. And God declares to Moses that because you have done this, you will now not enter into the promised land. After 38 years of wandering in the desert, of recalling the, the promises of God, of, of faithfully shepherding this large group of people and leading them finally to the promised land, God says to Moses, because of your sin, you are not going to enter. And the third thing that happens is Aaron dies. Aaron was the, the priest of God's people. He was, in a sense, Moses's best friend. They, they, they work together, they serve together, and he dies. And as you can imagine, this is a devastating loss for Moses. And in light of all of this, in light of Moses looking over to the promised land, disappointment and sorrow filling his heart, as he mourns the loss of some of his closest friends and family members, as he thinks of all the Israelites who have died in the wilderness due to their rebellion, as he ponders his own death, he sits down and he pens these words in Psalm chapter 90. And in Psalm 90, Moses gives us three encouragements, and these encouragements will serve as our outline for this morning. The first thing Moses does is he encourages us to rest in God in verses 1 and 2. The second thing he encourages us to do is to reckon with our fate in verses 3 to 11. And then lastly, Moses encourages us to request of God according to his promises in verses 12 to 17. So the first, Moses encourages us to rest in God. Take a look at verse 1. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The first thing that Moses does is this psalm. He makes a declaration or a statement about God, and the statement that he is making is that God is the home of his people. This is significant because Moses and the rest of the people of God did not have a home in Egypt, and they did not have a home as they journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years. And yet Moses can say 
that the Lord his God is our home. That they may not have roofs over their head and they may not have made it to the promised land just yet, but they are not homeless. That they have a place with God himself. As Moses gives his farewell speech to God's people, just before they enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and 34, Moses says to this, says this to them in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, he says that the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are his everlasting arms. Moses wants God's people to know at the front end of their transition into the promised land that they have a home in God that he is their place of refuge. I I love that Moses doesn't say that, that God has provided a place for us. No, he says that God himself is our dwelling place. Beloved, there is no more secure home than one that is in the Lord. You see, the places we call home can be taken away from us in a rather quick moment. But if God is your home, If God is your place of refuge, if God is the place where you rest your weary head, then you have a home that is secure and that can never be taken away from you. And notice that Moses tells us that God has been our place in all generations. In other words, there has never been a time where God has not been the dwelling place of his people. That as Abraham left his family behind, his, his kinsmen, and left with his immediate family. And as they journeyed as, as nomads, God was the dwelling place of his people. As Joseph was enslaved in Egypt, foreshadowing the fact that the Israelites would be enslaved in Egypt as well, God was his dwelling place. That as the Israelites roamed in the, the wilderness with no place to lay their head, as they wait to cross the Jordan River and make it into the promised land, God was the dwelling place of his people. As God's people who were forced into exile due to their sin, as they are scattered among the nations, no longer in the temple, no longer dwelling in the land that they were promised, God was still the dwelling place of his people. And beloved, the same reality that was for them is for us today, that God is still our dwelling place that he has made himself our our refuge. He has made himself a place where we can rest and hide and receive nourishment and refreshment, a place where you and I truly belong. All of us have this desire for a place to call home, a place of permanence, a place where our hearts can rest in a chaotic world. And friends, that place that you desire is only found in the Lord. Augustine was right, thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Moses tells us that this God who is our home is also one who is eternal. Listen to what he declares in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever had, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is saying this God who is our dwelling place is one who transcends time and space. 
He is eternal. He existed before the creation, and when creation comes to an end, he will still exist unchanged. He is, according to Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Because God is eternal, this means that he will not and cannot change. It means that his covenantal promises to you in his word are are unchangeable and eternal. And friends, what a comfort that is in a changing society, in in, in a society that ebbs and flows, in in a society where, where promises eventually reach their expiration date, Moses is saying that that is not true of your God. The one who promises to never leave us or forsake us, to always be our God and we are people, does not make these promises just for a moment. He doesn't even make these promises just for a lifetime. He makes these promises into eternity. Beloved, an eternal God has loved you with an eternal love. And this truth is a place for us to to rest our hearts as we think about death, isn't it? It teaches us that God's love goes even further than the grave itself, that his love will never let us go. Isn't this Paul's point towards the end of Romans chapter 8? He says that I'm sure that that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor powers, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Moses in the midst of death encourages us to rest in the God who is our eternal home. But not only does he call us to rest in God, he also tells us that you and I must recognize our fate. And that brings us to our second point, recognizing our fate or reckon with our fate. In verses 3 to 2, Moses tells us our fate, and then he gives us the reason for our fate, and then he makes a request of God in light of that fate. So first, he tells us our fate in verses 3 to 6. So take a look at what he says beginning in verse 3 and going down to verse 6. Moses says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as they watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like dreams, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades. Moses is making a contrast between the eternality of God and the frailty of humanity. And, what he, and, he, and, he, and as he does this, he, he's describing the, the fate of all of humanity, and he says that our fate is death. All of us have a shared destiny. And that is, we all, again, will one day die. In verse 3, he says that we, as the children of man, will return back to the dust. This is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. But after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God declares that Adam and the rest of mankind will return to the dust from which they came. All of us 
will one day have someone standing at the head of our casket telling us, or telling the people, that ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Verse 5, Moses describes our lives as a, a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning and, and fades in the evening. Moses is making a statement about the brevity of life. Down in verse 10, he says, the, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. We, they are soon gone and we fly away. Even what we understand to be a long life is one that in the grand scheme of things, that when you put it against the backdrop of eternity, it's a very short life. That even with modern technology, we can, we can make our lives last a, a little bit longer and perhaps day, de, delay death, but life is still short and death will eventually come. Every day we live, we move closer and closer to our death. The brevity of life is something that Scripture constantly mentions. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 68, the prophet Isaiah declares to Israel that all flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. The Apostle James asks this question in a very clear way in James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If there's one balloon that the Bible has no problem popping, it's the one that says that we have a long time on this earth. But the question is, why is that the case? Why do we die? Moses tells us why this is the case in verses 7 to 8 and 9 and 11. Listen to what he says. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set out our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What is Moses saying here? Moses is using very poetic language to say that the reason that we die, the reason that you and I and all of humanity are subject to sin and misery is because we are sinners. That Moses recognizes that our, our biggest problem is not our, our frailty, but that we are sinners and that we are subject to God's perfect judgment. And in fact, sin is the cause of our death and misery. Why do people die? What is the, 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 the greatest cause of death? It has always been because sin has entered into the world. Moses is again going back to, to Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis, we read that God gives Adam a command. He tells Adam that if you break my law, 
that if you rebel against my word, the penalty will be death and the reward will be life. God says to Adam, Adam, you will surely die if you are unfaithful to what I am calling you to do. And as many of us know, Adam disobeys the word of his God, that he rejects God and pursues his own way. And just as God has said, Adam, Eve, and all those who would follow him are subject to death and misery. Moses is trying to show us that death is linked together with sin. Or as Paul says, the the wages or the, the payment of sin is death. That all those who are children of Adam are under the curse of death. Beloved, death is not simply a natural occurrence. In fact, it's the most unnatural thing in this world. It's an enemy that continues to take and take and take and take, and it enslaves us. It's the monsters whose stomach is never full. You see, Moses wants us to feel the sting of death and be overwhelmed by it. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I wonder how you process all that I am saying. I wonder how you process death. Do you think about death? I mean, really, do you meditate on death? And when you're thinking about death, what are you thinking about? Do you have comfort in death? For the Christian, we not only have comfort, but even more than that, we have confidence. And we have confidence because God has done something about the problem of death, that our eternal God, the one who exists outside of time, steps into time and becomes like one of us, that God in Christ clothes himself in human frailty, and Jesus, who is both God and man, takes the curse of sin upon himself and dies in the place of sinners. The writer of Hebrews says this, says this about what Jesus has done for us. He says, so that he might deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And friends, this Jesus not only dies, but is also raised from the dead on, on the third day, defeating death. And for the Christian, this means that death is ultimately not our end fate. It is simply a necessary pathway to being with our God forever and ever. As George Herbert says, death used to be an executioner, but in the gospel, God has made him a gardener. What is, your, what is the ultimate fate for the Christian? It is that we will die, and that should sober us, but it is also that we will be raised from the dead. Well, as, as many of you know, my wife Haley's uncle is preparing to die really soon. He's 53 years old and was diagnosed with stomach cancer two years ago. And he went through treatment and the treatment was effective. There was a, a bunch of rejoicing, but a few months ago, they heard that the cancer had returned. And when the doctors had to have the hard conversation of telling him and his wife there's nothing more than they can do. He told them teary-eyed, I'm ready to see my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, this man with the curse and shadow of death closer 
than it's ever been, looks into the face of death with, with tears in his eyes, sorrowful, but with a deep confidence because he knows that on the last day, he will be raised from the dead again. I've had the privilege of going to a number of different funerals, and there's something that's distinctively beautiful about a Christian funeral, is that as we come together, as we look at the, the casket of the, of the one who is deceased, and as we lift our voices up in song, we are declaring that this is not the end fate for our brother and sister in the Lord, that God at, at the last day will raise them from the dead. And we can have confidence in that. And beloved, I want that for us as a church. I want us to be a people who reckon honestly with death, but who have a confidence because they know that though we die, yet shall we live because of the resurrection of Jesus. Moses encourages us to rest in God and to reckon with our fate. But the last thing that Moses encourages us to do is to make requests to God according to his word. That's our last point. Make request of God according to his word. And as Moses meditates on death, as he meditates on the fact that God's people are about to enter into the promised land, Moses does something that he has always done. And he begins to pray on behalf of Israel. And again, this is quite normal for Moses, that if you read the, the ministry of Moses, one of the things that Moses primarily did is that he prayed on, God, on behalf of God's people. That as God's people fall into sin and they worship the golden calf and God is about to uh, execute judgment upon his people, Moses stands and begins to plead the promises of God back to God and God spares his people. And Moses is doing the same thing again in verses 12 to 17, he's pleading with the Lord on behalf of Israel as she begins to head into this new season of her life. And the first request that Moses makes is found in verse 12. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is asking God to teach his people to recognize their death so that they might live wisely in the land. This request sounds strange to us. What does it mean to, to, to teach us to, to number our days, to, to, to meditate on our death? But friends, think about it. How would your life change if you constantly and cautiously thought about your own death? I'm willing to bet that there's some things that you would be willing to let go, and some other things that you would prioritize. Moses wants the people of Israel to live wisely in the land, so he prays that the Lord would teach them to number their days, to, to recognize that they will, will die. He wants them to live holy lives in the land that God has promised them. In order to do that, they need to come to grips with the fact that where they are going is only temporary. I think Moses wants the people to remember their death so that they do not forget that their true home is with the Lord. Yes, the land is important. It was God being faithful to the promises that he made to their forefathers and foremothers, and it was a blessing, but it was always meant to point past itself to the Lord who, again, is the dwelling place of his people. And beloved, when you and I don't number our days, 
when we don't really meditate on our mortality, we begin to make this earth our home and live unwisely. The next request that Moses makes is a request for satisfaction, mercy, and gladness. Take a look at verses 13 to 15. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses is asking the Lord to have mercy on his people again, that they have suffered under the, the hand of God in the wilderness due to their sin, but now they have, are about to enter into the land of promise. And God says, or Moses says, God, please be merciful to your people. And he's making this request based on what God has said about himself. But if you flip back to Exodus chapter 34, when God shows his glory to Moses, he declares himself to be a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And that's exactly what Moses prays to God on behalf of his people. He's saying, Lord, this is who you have promised yourself to be. Please be it again for your people. He also prays that the Lord would satisfy his people and make them glad. He's praying that the Lord would fill the hearts of his people with love so that they might be glad in him. I love that prayer, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Moses is asking the Lord to give us an amount of joy that is equal to the amount of suffering that we have experienced. And you know what? God answers that prayer better than the way Moses asked it. He answers it by not giving us just a joy that matches our suffering, but he actually gives us a joy that goes further than our, our suffering, a joy that surpasses our suffering, that in Christ we are given far more than what we lost. This is how the Apostle Paul viewed suffering. He tells us that, in, that this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all, uh, all comparison. In verse 16, Moses prays that God would show his work to his servants and his glorious power to their children. And then he concludes with this beautiful prayer in verse 17, which, which sounds like a, a wonderful benediction. He says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As Moses, again, is entering into his final days, as he watches Israel about to enter into the promised land, he simply prays to the Lord, Lord, let my work continue after I am dead and gone. Moses has led God's people thus far he has faithfully pastored and, and ministered to them and, and loved them. And he's praying, Lord, continue my work. Establish what I have done and make it count, not just now, but also into the promised land and also into eternity. How can Moses pray such a bold prayer? Moses can pray this bold prayer because he has made his work God's work. Beloved, is that, is, the, is that the desire of your heart? Are you working towards things 
that will continue after you die. You see, we can spend our whole lives investing and building and securing our own little kingdoms. And friends, when you die, all of those things are going to fade away with you. But if you spend your life quietly, faithfully, consistently working and serving Christ and seeking his kingdom, then your work and service will echo throughout eternity. Listen to this encouragement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Beloved, because God is our dwelling place, because the resurrection of Christ is true, let us work and serve with eternity in mind. Only one life in a few brief years, each with its burden, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Beloved, only what is done for Christ will last. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have been, you are our dwelling place. You are our place of shelter. You are our home. We pray, Lord, that your word would bear fruit in our hearts and transform us. Lord, teach us to number our days. Allow us to look at our lives against the backdrop of eternity so that we might live wisely in this age. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.